Well, good morning again. It's good to be together, isn't it? We had a a great time in Canada. It was a long drive for a short time there, but uh, it was great to be with family, and it's good to be back with family here. I want to uh, introduce something that's going on uh, over the next few weeks. We're going to be beginning a new sermon series focusing on the church. And it's really just going to be through the month of January that we're going to be focusing on this. And uh, we're going to have different uh, topics that we're discussing in our sermon series on the church. Uh, One of them that we want to ask is, why be committed to a church? And so we want to give some biblical reasons uh, for why we should be committed to a church. Uh, We want to ask the question in another sermon, what is the role uh, of a church? What's the church supposed to be accomplishing? What's it for? Why did God design it? And so we're going to look at that coming up. And we're also going to look at uh, what is my role in the church. And so these are some of the questions that we want to talk about as we face a new year and, and some new opportunities. And uh, we flip the calendar and, you know, people make New Year's resolutions and whatnot. I think we thought it would be a good opportunity for us to focus on the church and God's priority in the church and, and uh, a- ask and answer some of these questions together. And along that line, today's message is meant to answer the question, what is the church and how do we relate to it? What is the church? And so uh, that's going to be our topic for today. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be speaking from this text. And as you're turning there in Ephesians chapter 2, just to uh, introduce kind of what's going on in this letter, this is, a, of course, a New Testament epistle written by Paul, and he's writing it to a church in Ephesus that was uh, largely a Jewish church, though there were Gentiles involved also. And and uh, so he was writing to talk about, in chapter 1 there, the glories of Christ and what all Christ has accomplished for us and the blessings that are ours by virtue of what Christ has done. And then he moves on into chapter 2 and he talks about how this salvation takes place in the life of an individual and what God does when he saves someone. And, and then we get to our passage And he begins to talk about kind of corporately what God is doing in the church. And uh, he starts talking about this relationship between the Jews that were present there and the Gentiles that were present there in that church and how they are to relate to one another. And so with that background in mind, let me pick up the story here in Ephesians chapter 2. And we will start reading in verse 11. We'll go all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore, remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer 
strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word that you have given us that speaks truth concerning who you are and who we are and how we can know you. Thank you that we have your word in front of us and we have this passage in front of us. Father, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would help us to understand what you have written here. I pray that you would work by your spirit in our hearts, that we would see and understand the truth here, and that we would see and understand that truth as it applies to our lives. So, Father, we commit our time to you. We commit ourselves to you. We commit our service to you. And we ask for your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's the new year, and uh, we're just a few days in, and so probably a few of you have begun to uh, read your Bibles, uh, maybe from Genesis chapter 1, and you've committed that this year uh, you're going to read through it in a year, or maybe two years, or maybe faster, but uh, this time of year it seems like a lot of people are reading through Genesis. And it doesn't take long as you're reading through the book of Genesis before the story seems to go south, right? There's two chapters of things going really well, and then you get to chapter 3, and, and we have the fall uh, of man there in Genesis chapter 3. And, and we see uh, some things develop that are very sad. They're, they're heartbreaking, really. There's an alienation that begins to take place all the way there, starting in the beginning, right in chapter 3 of the book that you have this alienation between God and man, where once when God would come into the garden, He would be received and and there would be joy and there would be relationship and there would be closeness and intimacy between the man and the woman and God. And now, after the fall, God comes into the garden and, of course, Adam and Eve are hiding. They've run away. There's a, there's a break. There's a separation. There's an alienation. There's a, there's a break in their relationship that they have with God. And of course, as time goes on, we see that uh, before long, they're actually completely banished from the garden. And so there has been a severe break in their relationship. They are now alienated from God's presence in the way that they used to have it so clearly. But of course, that's not the end of the sadness because it, you see an alienation. You see a break in the relationship between the man and the woman, don't you? And it starts right off the bat when, when, uh, when God begins to confront Adam about what he's done. What does Adam say? Well, it was this woman that you gave me, right? And so he blames this woman and blames God for what happened. And so you see a break there in the relationship and you see there, there begins to be a struggle between the man and the woman. And that, that, there's a lot there. There's a lot of truth that we could dig out of there and a lot of things we could preach on that. Uh, but one of those things is that there's struggle and alienation and break in our relationship with one another. We are alienated from God and we're alienated from one another. That's the plight of mankind. And of course, we here in the church are not immune to those problems, are we? We still sense alienation. We're often at odds with one another. We often struggle in our relationship with each other. 
Sometimes believers break off fellowship with one another and for reasons that really don't seem to be all that significant, but uh, they have that kind of break in relationship. And you see denominations fragment from one another. You see churches split from one another. You have break in relationship. Christians aren't exempt from this same problem. The fact remains that even as Christians, we often feel a sense of alienation, of separation from God and from other people. And so the question comes up, what are we to do about this pervasive problem? I mean, the Bible is a story of redemption, right? Surely it has answers about how we're to deal with this separation, this this uh, break in relationship. Shouldn't it tell us how to solve the problem? Well, in fact, the Bible does tell us about solving this problem. And the Bible tells us that the church is right at the center of the solution. Our text in Ephesians chapter 2 discusses the, the integration of Jews and Gentiles together in one church. How they are to view one another. Should the, should the Jews who have had the promises of God for, for, for generations and generations, should they view the Gentiles as outsiders, as second class citizens, or, or perhaps the Gentiles who, who are new to the faith should regard the Jews as nothing because they blew it and, and disregarded uh, God's commandments? How should they view one another? And Ephesians is written in large part to answer that question. The gulf between the two peoples was vast at the time. What Paul tells the Jewish and Gentile believers at Ephesus is going to be instructive even for us today in the 21st century in this new year. We must seek unity with other Christians because of our redeemed condition. We need to seek unity with one another because we are redeemed in Christ. And so as we look at our passage here, we see that we must seek unity with other Christians because of our past status. We have a common status between one another. We have a similar history with one another. Well, the question is, what is our past status? Look at verses uh, 11 and beginning into 12 there. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. What was our past? What was our status? Well, we we had alienation from the promise. The covenants that uh, God gave with Abraham and with Moses, they were given to the Jews. These were, these were promises made. They were covenants made with the Jews. There was a special relationship with the Jews as, as God's chosen people. And he, he was working in them. He was working with them. And so what that means is, for those of us who are Gentiles, meaning those of us who are not Jews, we were excluded from those things. We... We, we largely never heard, we of course weren't alive then, but Gentiles largely never heard of the promises that God had made the nation of Israel, the ways that he was going to work in redemption. They didn't hear. They were virtually unknown to them. And he says, you Gentiles, that's where you were. There had been promises made and you knew nothing of them. You were far from them. You were removed from them. So we had alienation from promise. But we see, continuing on there in verse 12, we see that uh, we, were a, uh, we had alienation from hope in God. 
right? He says, we were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And by the way, this is where you and I were born. This is the position you and I were born in. We were alienated from God. We, we, had, we had no hope. We had no relationship with God. And this is the way we were born. That's the condition we were born into. And of course, earlier on in the first few verses of chapter 2, that's what Paul's talking about there. Look up at verse 1. He's describing everyone's condition in which they were born. He said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's the condition we were born into. That's the condition everyone is born into, is alienation from hope in God. This is kind of a, a summary. Our verse here uh, at the end of chapter 12, or verse 12, is sort of a summary of what he said before. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. Well, if we continue on reading, we see there in verse 13, finally some good news. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We see that that alienation that we were born with, alienation from the promises, alienation from hope in God, that alienation has finally been remedied. God has taken care of that. God has stepped into that situation. And though the Gentiles were alienated from God and from His people, in Christ they have now been brought near. So those who were far off, those who were separated, those who hadn't heard, they were unaware of the promises, those who were excluded have been brought near. It's powerful to notice here that it is the death of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that is what God uses to bring us near. It's the perfect fulfillment that Christ is of the Jewish system that He uses to bring Gentiles in as well. That brings the outcast and makes him actually a partaker of the divine blessings in Christ. We're asking the question today, what is the church? Well, this is, this is beginning to answer the question of what is the church. We are, we, the church is made up of those who were far away from God, but now in Christ have been brought near. And we actually experience the blessings of being in Christ. So it's important for us to keep our minds sometimes on what our past situation was, what our past status was. When I was, uh, as soon as I turned 16, I started doing road construction. And uh, I had grown up on a farm, so I was used to hard work. But now I was doing hard work standing on hot asphalt. And that was less fun. And so I did that for several years and then uh, moved on and, and got married. My wife and I moved to Chicago and, and, you know, I was in school. I was, classes were long and finals and papers and just so exhausted and all this stuff. And then I would drive by someone doing road construction. <laughs> and I would look and I would remember how hard a work that was. And suddenly my suffering that I was going through, you know, suffering at a computer under an air conditioner, you know, my suffering seemed a whole lot less than the suffering that I had gone through earlier. I needed to be reminded of where I had come from. I needed to be reminded of what my past status was. And sometimes that's true for us too. Being, being reminded of 
what God has brought us from helps to renew our attitudes. It renews our perspectives. And so, Christian, you were once separated from God. You once had no hope. You were far off from God. But now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And there might be other believers that you struggle in relating to. Maybe you have a desire to shun them. You you really don't want to be with them. You would rather just never see them again. You want to alienate them in some way. But those believers came from the same place you came from. They were delivered in the same way that you were delivered. We share a common past with one another. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to seek unity with other Christians because of our common past. We must seek unity with one another because of our shared past status. And we must also seek unity with one another because of our present status. Well, the question that raises is, what is our present situation? We look down at verse 14 and we see, For he himself is our peace, who, was made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. What's our new status? What's our new situation? Well, peace has been created. Peace has been created. There used to be hostility. There used to be alienation. There used to be distance. There used to be enmity. But instead now, there has been created peace. And notice where that peace comes from. Christ Himself. He Himself, verse 14, is our Peace. Peace has been created. Peace with God. Certainly peace with God. That's what chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 are largely about is this peace with God that has been created in Christ. But he's talking here about peace between us. Peace between Jew and Gentile. Peace between believers. And notice how he created peace. There's a lot that could be said in these verses. But notice how he created peace by killing the hostility. I love the irony there. He created peace by killing the hostility. That thing, that that enmity that was between us and other people, that enmity that started all the way back in the garden between Adam and Eve where they wanted to throw one another under the bus when God came to uh, to question them, that enmity, that division that started all the way back then, and we can look and see it now, He has killed. Christ has killed. He's put it to death. And He's formed us into one body. He took two people and made one man. He brought us together. He has killed the hostility. He has created peace. And now, verse 17, that peace is preached. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off. Peace to those who were near. He had said in verse 12 that that Gentiles were born alienated, born separate, born strangers to the covenants of promise, born separated from God 
But he has bridged the gap. And he has preached peace. Not just to those who are near. Certainly true. But even to those who are far off. And that's us. He's speaking here specifically about Gentiles. The Gentiles who were, who were alien to the promise. They were strangers to the promise. To, they didn't know about the covenants. They weren't included in those covenants. And peace has been preached to them as well. And that's true of us. We who were born separated from God. And peace even now is preached to you. And maybe there are even some in this room who are still separated from God, who are still in that place of hostility toward God, of, of seeking their own uh, lordship in their lives, demanding to call their own shots. They're going to be their own boss. They, they are filling out what, what uh, Paul was talking about in verses 1 and 2 and 3, dead in sins and trespasses, following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Maybe that's you. I'm here today to preach peace to you. To say that in Christ, there is peace. Peace with one another. Peace between Christians. And ultimately, peace with God. As He has taken upon Himself as Christ. Taken upon our sins. Paid the penalty for those that we might have forgiveness. And by the way, that's the only way we can have forgiveness. Is that penalty that Christ has paid. So we who used to be strangers, we have now had peace preached to us. Some of you remember the story of Jim Elliott and his friends in January of 1956 in Ecuador. They went to preach the gospel to the, uh, to the Alca peoples. And when they showed up, they had made some initial contacts. But in a pretty early contact, Jim Elliott and his four friends were speared to death. And Jim Elliott left behind his wife, Elizabeth, and his 10-month-old daughter. What was his wife going to do? Sitting here, we could probably forgive her if she rode off all of South America, if she moved back home, if she, if she had enmity in her heart towards those people. But she moved there instead. She moved to the place of those people who had killed her husband. And she preached peace. She preached peace in Christ. The fact that peace is preached to sinners like us is an even greater miracle than Elizabeth Elliot going back to the Alka peoples. We have sinned against God in even greater ways than those Indians sinned against Jim Elliot and his friends. And yet peace is preached to us. And thirdly, peace is granted. Look at verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access. Peace has been granted. We have, we who were far off, we who were alienated, we who, who were excluded from the promises and the covenants, we actually have access to the presence of the Father. Jew and Gentile alike who historically had been so separate from one another throughout all of this time, both now have the same access. Peace has been made in the same way for each. And Access to the Father has been made in the same way for each in Christ. And so how does this apply to us? Because of our present status of peace with God and other Christians, because of Christ, pursuing unity with, one, with other believers is not optional. 
for Christians. It's not optional. All Christians have been redeemed in exactly the same way. The exact same blood was shed from the exact same Savior. We have been redeemed in the same way. One group of Christians does not have an advantage over another group of Christians. Of course, the struggles that they had between Jew and Gentile in the early church may look different now. We may not see quite the same things, but frankly, we have our own struggles. And our culture would have us divide nowadays and struggle over race or over gender or over sexual identity or over economic status. And really the opportunities to divide and separate are limitless, right? And that's what's being pushed in our culture today. But Christian, we are called to be different. We have actually been made to be different than that. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has created in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. And he has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We must leave the hostility dead, Christians. And we must seek unity between Christians because of our present status. And thirdly, we must also seek unity because of our present structure of the church. The present structure of the church. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the building. I'm not talking about how this building was constructed or any uh, physical building. But he uses imagery here of a building. He talks about a household, and what he means by that is a structure, a building. This is the image he uses. And so, so what do I mean when I say that we must seek unity because of the present structure of the church? Well, first of all, we have a common foundation. Look with me at, at uh, verses 19 and verse 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's that phrase built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We have a common foundation. He's, he's picturing the church, the, the redeemed people of God as if it were a building, as if it were a house that's being built. And how is a house built? Well, it's built upon a foundation. And he says, what is that foundation? By the way, we all share this foundation is his point. That foundation is the apostles and prophets. It's revelation from God is that foundation. Revelation that was communicated via his apostles to us in the New Testament. He has laid down what that foundation is. And that foundation has already been laid. And upon that is what the church is being built. And so we, brothers and sisters, have a common foundation. The revelation of God. And now, of course, we don't have the, the apostles running around. They have, they have all died. But, of course, God had them write the New Testament. And so we have the testimony of the apostles right here. And so now our access to the foundation is the Word of God. Which, by the way, is the reason we spend so much time preaching and teaching the Word of God. Because this is our access to the foundation. When I was uh, 14 years old, my grandfather moved to stay with us for about six months because my parents were busy, and, and, uh, but they wanted to build a second story onto our house, at least over the back portion of our house. And so my grandfather, who could do anything and everything, he, uh, he came and he stayed with us for a few months, and that's what he did. And when he tore off 
the, uh, the roof and got ready to build, it drove him crazy because the room on top of which he was building was not square. <laughs> the angles weren't right. And so he was left with a, a quandary. What's he going to do? Because he couldn't bring himself to, you know, build without using right angles. By the way, coming into my office would have driven him crazy also. There's one right angle in my whole office. <laughs> but this, this was a building that was supposed to be square, but it was not. It was built out of square. And so what was my grandfather going to do? Well, if you go to my parents' house now, you'll see where they don't quite join up because my, my, he just couldn't bring himself to build out of square. And the, the upstairs is square. The downstairs is not. We need a foundation. Foundation is important. Foundation it needs to be solid. It needs to be firm and it needs to be straight. And of course, in ancient architecture, the way, uh, what, what gave a building its shape and what gave the, the corners their right angles was the cornerstone. And look at verse 22. We see that we have also a common cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grow, uh, grows into a holy temple. Uh, I, I skipped, I'm sorry, verse 20. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there is a cornerstone that sets the direction. There's a cornerstone that determines how right that angle is going to be and what the lie of the building is going to be. And Christ is that cornerstone. And there aren't multiple cornerstones for multiple churches. There aren't multiple cornerstones for multiple Christians or for Christians in different eras or for Christians in different parts of the world or for Christians with different desires or different tastes. There's one cornerstone and it's Christ. And the cornerstone is laid first and it's the one that has to be laid with the most care because the foundation is going to be built based upon the lie of the cornerstone. And of course, that makes sense that with Christ as our cornerstone, he was the one that gave direction to the apostles. He was the one that told the apostles and the prophets which way to build, as it were. He set the direction. He set the design. He set how square the church was going to be so that the building would be strong, so that it would grow. Christ determined the shape and the direction of revelation. And there's a, there's a point of application here for us as well on this. As we interpret Scripture, the foundation, we must always have our eyes on Christ, who's the cornerstone. We need to keep our eyes fixed on that cornerstone so that we can see why we're building the way we're building, why we're growing the way we're growing. We need to have our eyes fixed on Christ. And to read the Bible without reference to Christ, which, by the way, is what the Jewish leaders did of the first century, and that's why they missed Jesus. They read the Bible without reference to Christ. If we do that, if we read Scripture without reference to Christ, we also, likewise, are misreading Scripture. He is the cornerstone. You can't get past Him. He is what sets the direction for all of Revelation. So we have a common cornerstone, and we also have a common destiny. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice the language of commonality there. The language of unity. The whole structure being joined together, being built together. There's a, there's a, there's a unity that's being described here. It's being assumed here that as 
the church is growing based upon the cornerstone that is Christ, based upon the foundation that is the revelation from God, as it's growing, it's growing in unity. It's growing together. And which brick would you like to remove? You know, sometimes we uh, might pick and choose about those Christians we would want to be with or those Christians that we really like or possibly approve of or whatnot. And, and I, I wonder if you start removing bricks, I don't like that one. I don't like those people. How long the building's going to stay? We're all built together. We're mixed in together, being built into this great temple of God, being built into this great dwelling place of God, the church, the dwelling place of God. And we're being built together. And so some questions are being raised about perhaps those Christians that uh, maybe we don't really like. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, it's a certain kind of people or maybe it's a certain background or, or something like that. And we don't have those, those options. We don't have those options. The church is being built together into a dwelling place of God. And so I asked the question in the beginning, what is the church? And we started talking about a little bit of a definition, a kind of a kernel of an idea. What's the heart of the definition of the church? Well, I, I would say from this passage, here's what it is. Those who were far off and alienated are now in Christ, the very dwelling place of God. That's us. Sometimes Christians get misunderstood. Sometimes we get correctly understood. Sometimes people look at us and think, wow, Christians just think they're better than other people. Sometimes Christians do think they're better than other people. And I would encourage us when we do that to go back to chapter 2 and verse 1 and start reading there again. We came from the same place. There's not a better than. It's that Christ has done a work in our, in our lives. But sometimes people look at Christians or they look at the church and they think, oh, the church really, they, they think they're better than other people. And that is not the case. The fact is that in the church, ground zero of becoming a Christian is understanding there's a God and I'm not him. And I don't even measure up, even remotely. And so how can I, with the foundation of my understanding of myself is that I don't measure up to God's standard. How then can I lord it over someone else? How then can I alienate you how then can there be division in the church well this raises a question and the question has to do with our application the dwelling place of god needs to have unity by the way the church is where god has ordained that his redeemed children from whatever background or ethnicity are to come together to learn god's word the church is where god is ordained for that to be. This is where we're to come together and worship Him. We're to, to learn to obey Him at church. There is no substitute for being connected to a local church. The church is where we come to rejoice in God that we have redemption in Him. Do, do you forget that sometimes? I forget that sometimes. I, for, I forget to rejoice in God in this redemption that I have because I'm so caught up in my, in my own squabbles or my own things I'm frustrated about or the hard, you know, the hard things of my life or whatever. And I forget about this great redemption that I have in Christ. And then I come to church and I'm reminded at church, Christ has given himself 
to redeem me. And so you come here, and it's possible that in a week, you might forget the same thing. You might forget to bring that up in your own mind. You might forget to have Christ in front of you. But we come here and we remind one another of that truth, of all that we have in Christ. Here is where we remind one another to look to Christ and to look to His completed work. And by the way, church is the central place where we receive the teaching of God's Word. It's at church. And God has designed the church for that purpose. So that we would grow together. And here is where we are taught how to walk with God. And so when we talk about unifying as Christians, we're talking about unifying around Christ and His Word. This is why we teach the Bible. We don't just unify with everyone. We don't just join with everyone who uh, claims to be Christian. We want to unify and build based upon the foundation. And anyone who's happy to build with me on this foundation, the cornerstone of Christ, I am happy to join with. I'm happy to build with. When this is the authority, when this is what we submit to, when, when the foundation laid by Christ is sufficient for me and sufficient for another person, I am tickled to join with him, regardless of our differences in background, perhaps, regardless in our differences in tastes. We build together. We are being built together by God upon a common foundation of his word. The church is where we find the greatest unifying truth that our Lord Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And this is where we set aside personal differences and we gather in unity around Jesus, our Lord. And this is the first Sunday of the month. And so we come and we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's called communion. We are communing with God and with one another. And we get to do so because of what Christ has done. And so if I could ask the men to come forward, please, who are going to be serving communion. This is the first